Welcome to the Cinema in Seconds podcast. This is the podcast where we look at the small moments in some great films. And this week we're going way back to the early 1940s. My name is Ian. I'm Daniel. And today we have our very first returning guest, who was actually also our first guest uh, in period, which is... Ian and I have already run out of friends and we are going (laughs) back to asking people who've already shown up. Yeah. So Michael, welcome back to the podcast. Uh, good to be back. So we're looking at the 1940s. We're going old school again. We went, I think 50s is the latest that we've gone so far. So this is this is our biggest throwback to the early Hollywood days. Yeah, and it's uh, quite an eventful half decade uh, in world history. So cinema kind of reflected Lately, that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yes, um, certainly to be reflected in some of our uh, later picks. I wanted to ask you guys, um, because we're, I think, all to varying degrees, fairly well watched when it comes to movies um, and from the 40s, no less. But did you find it difficult to pick this week? Because there's a lot of movies that I really like from this era, but I felt it was actually somewhat hard to zero in on specific moments and little moments, no less, from the films and i don't know if it's just because i don't watch i haven't rewatched these films as much as maybe some from like i don't know the 80s for example or if it's reflective of the films themselves i had a tough time yeah i mean the thing about this era is um it's it's very it's a very famous era because there are like a couple like incredibly famous movies from this period that really stand out to people but if you look at the greater breadth of filmmaking in the world it was not at its like strongest point even just just in terms of terms of sheer quantity like not a lot of movies were being made in uh, continental europe for obvious reasons and (laughs) uh filmmaking hadn't really spread to a lot of other places as well uh like the japanese cinema was mired in just propaganda nonsense and to some extent, so we're, there's a lot of propaganda going on in the films coming out of uh, the Western world as well. So um, Hollywood was kind of holding everything up during this period as far as the wider world of cinema. And even it was kind of, it had its limitations. So there wasn't quite as much to choose from. Yeah, I think that's a good point. Although you mentioned the um like the propaganda that like the japanese film industry was caught up in at the time and i guess obviously germany and yeah <laughs> even british and american cinema that's all a lot of propaganda there mm-hmm. the difference being that there was there were at least some normal movies coming out of like hollywood mm-hmm. which yeah. <laughs> yeah well i was I... thinking with uh, japan we could have i guess we could have gone down the road of like picking something like Senshiro Sagata and like a moment that's like this moment in itself is not that good but it kind of sort of echoes something later in Kurosawa's career that was really awesome so um but I don't think any of us went that route sadly I always saw the 40s as kind of like one of one of the great decades in movies but I think I only thought of that because some like some of my absolute favorites came from that because when I started looking back and trying to go back to think about what films to talk about I actually am not very well versed in this time period at all like i thought i had seen way more 40s films than i think i actually have it's pretty sparse 
I found the lack of rewatching stuff was hard because like immediately I was like, Oh, the grapes of wrath. I love that film. And then it was like, I haven't seen it since undergrad. So memories of little moments were pretty scarce. I wouldn't be able to say anything like compelling about them, but uh, nonetheless, I think we managed to craft or uh, find some interesting gems amidst that. And, you know, Michael, you mentioned that like the early forties is sort of defined by a few key big films. I'll start us off with, the biggest of early 40s films. The biggest of well, films. I might debate that, but we'll get there. Okay, we'll throw down on that point. Uh, Citizen Kane, directed by Orson Welles. Uh, the most, the greatest movie of all time. So this film is sort of full of both little and big moments. And the scene I've chosen is debatably one of the bigger ones. It's certainly, I think, a pretty pivotal uh, seen in the film but the moment I'm selecting specifically within it is really simple and why I like it is sort of specific to a memory of it and kind of a throwaway memory of it but uh, the scene I'm choosing is when Kane is a young man still and he's taken over the Inquirer newspaper and he's talking to his legal guardian Mr. Thatcher who is none too pleased with the writings in the Inquirer and views it as um antithetical to his business interests because it is and he's laying into Kane for his publication of it and trying to dissuade him from doing so and he tries a couple of different methods and none of them really work and then towards the end he basically just points out uh do you think it's wise to continue this you know philanthropic enterprise that's costing you a million dollars a year and Kane retorts you're right Mr. Thatcher I did lose a million dollars this last year I expect I'll lose a million dollars this year I expect I'll lose a million dollars next year you know Mr. Thatcher at the rate of a million dollars a year I'll have to close this place in 60 years um it's a great line it's very clever it's very snide and it's it's very, as like a viewer who's identifying with Kane, it's very satisfying to watch him put this old goat in his place. I also just love as an actor what it lets Wells do because he kind of gets to do a bunch of different things in the scene. He starts off very carefree youth who seems like he doesn't have a care in the world and is just happy to be uh, sticking it to the man. And then he gets really self-righteous in the middle and talks about how he's you know, a champion of the working man. He's going to stick up for the little guy's interests. Uh, and then at the end, he gets this wonderful moment of sarcasm and wit. And that's just really fun as an actor to watch, especially an actor like Wells, who seems to just relish every minute he has on screen. Um, but I think the main reason it stands out to me is just how fun it is. Uh, Citizen Kane has a reputation as the greatest movie of all time, as one of these films that like people watch because they feel like they have to, not because they really want to. And it's like homework and... I think a lot of people get into their head that it's going to be very slow and self-serious and boring. And it's really not at all. It's very fun and uh, entertaining and energetic and it moves like a beast. And despite the fact that it covers like an entire man's life, it is a really sharp and quick two hours. And this line in its own little way really reflects that spirit to the point that I remember, and this is going to show just how cool I am to the listener. Um, I had some friends over, I think it was like maybe high school maybe like early university and we were playing uh seen it the turner classic movies edition because again we were rad and awesome and it was one of those you know watch this clip and it was that scene and one of my buddies with me like does not watch old movies at all but when it got to the end and that final line hit he was laughing like so uproariously hard like it wasn't just like 
this stodgy old movie to him. It was really fun and cool. And I thought that was just great. And I think it's a good example of, uh, of that. So um, there's a couple other things I'll maybe say about the scene later, but for now, that's, that's my scene. I yeah, love it's, that you brought board games into it. Oh, it's true. <laughs> it's a crossover. And I'm jealous that you did it before me, but that's fine. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting because what jumped out at, to me about that scene was actually a darker element of it, which is that uh, the scene actually starts with Kane um, saying something along the lines of uh, telling a photographer that he needs to provide the pictures and Kane will provide the war uh in this situation which is something that william randolph Hearst is alleged to have said once when he was essentially being accused of drumming up the spanish american war to sell papers so in this scene the cane goes from starting major world conflicts out of sheer greed to then being accused of running this paper for not even not even making a profit on this paper so it, it's it's interesting because this guy is being ruthless on one hand and yet he's not even making this money so it's almost like uh so why is he being evil if he's not making money is it, it seems to me that it's it's just that this whole thing is just a game to him it's all about power and influence more so than even greed Mm-hmm. Um, and the way it kind of goes from that one thing to the next like that, uh, that's really what stood out to me about that scene. That's a really strong point. Um, and I think, I mean, it's a sly bit of commentary about potentially, you know, the ways the, the wealthy <laughs> make choices that affect our lives. Um, but also what I love about it too, and it ties into how sort of fun the film is and Kane's performance is, or Wells's performance rather as Kane is at least the first time going through, I, as a viewer, didn't really totally pick up on the sinister undertones of that scene. I kind of got just so swept up in the exuberance of the film and Kane's character that it's only on your reflection. I'm like, wait, that's like really messed up and really horrible what's being put forth there. And I kind of love the way that the film almost seduces you and brings you along for that ride. Um, In general, I love when movies do that. And I think that this one does it very well. Well, it does a good job of getting you on his side at least temporarily like the the moment you're talking about there dan because eventually like i don't know at least i feel like you know and i think we're supposed to we distance ourselves from him as the film goes on because we see the power that he wants corrupting him but i do think it's important that we start on his side and i think that quips like that and because he does have that spirited stick it to the man energy that you know, you're automatically like, yeah, I'm on his side. But right when he's saying he's going to start a war, you are you're already seeing where he's going to end up at. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but we do it's need to like him at some point. For sure. But all the pieces are in place that you see where he's going to go. So it, it feels it's not it doesn't blindside you when it's like, wow, he became a dick. It's like the pieces are there. Um, yeah, great, great scene. So Watch Citizen Kane if you haven't. It's so much more entertaining and fun than you'll be expecting. So, yeah, it's a good one. <laughs> <laughs> I've seen it though with like first year students who, at least the one year when I was teaching the course, they started it with Citizen Kane, which I thought was not great. 
Um, I mean, I thought it was great because I was happy to watch it again, but certain viewers need to be kind of eased into the 40s. But in years where it's been like later in the semester, students are actually a lot more receptive to it than they expect to be at the beginning of the year. At least like obviously the cinephile students are down, but the more casual ones, it's usually fairly well received. So I don't know. Yeah, testimonials I mean, attesting to its uh power with the the kids yeah it's like the usual like uh the cliche is that they show that in film school because of like uh and it's a great example of pretty much every aspect of filmmaking so i can kind of see how it could be makes sense as sort of just a boom here's every everything we're going to be talking about but on the other hand, it could be done at the end and then everything you talk about, you see it in there. So, mm -hmm. yeah. Anyway, that's, uh, I think that wraps me up. Uh, Michael, do you want to jump into your pick? All right. Uh, so my pick uh, is probably the first movie we're going to be talking about that uh, directly ties into the then, t then uh, current events of the early 40s, World War II. Uh, and this one really goes at it head on um but it does it in a pretty uh different way than a lot of movies would uh it is uh ernst lubitsch's uh to be or not to be which is a just blistering satire of nazism and uh the state of the world in 1942 it's almost shocking that this movie was made right in the middle of just the height of everyone's uh just the depths of the war um but also that it really just continues to work to this day uh so ernst lubitsch of course is a filmmaker who's known for having a very sly touch the lubitsch touch they say he had a way of kind of dancing around with um uh the, dancing around the censors dancing around kind of things that might be off-putting to conservative audiences and early in his career that usually meant uh you know, using sexual innuendo, uh, finding ways to bring kind of saucy content to the screen and but in a way that seemed tasteful. And with To Be or Not To Be, you kind of see that same thing applied to political satire, I guess you could call it, um, to sort of talk about the, the nastiness of this war. And um, for those who haven't seen it, it's a movie where a troop of actors is... Um, find themselves behind the in occupied Poland doing kind of a mission for the allies. Um, they're kind of disguising themselves to infiltrate the Nazis. That's a very brief summary. And this scene comes kind of late in the film when uh, one of these actors has um, disguised himself as uh, uh, someone who's, who they've identified as a Nazi spy within Poland. And He's talking to a Nazi officer named uh, Colonel uh, Earhart, who has a rather unfortunate nickname. We'll not get into that right now. But um, in the scene, he's trying to, his, his basic mission is to uh, slip uh, some fake names to the Nazis to, so they will think they, the um, leaders of the uh, uh Polish underground have already been killed. Uh, so he, they, so, and uh, so he meets this uh, Colonel Earhart who is just the biggest idiot you can imagine. He's just the most bumbling 
uh, Nazi. I, I'm pretty sure Colonel Clank from Hogan's Heroes was directly inspired by him. Um, and he, so he get finally he gets the plan. Uh, the Colonel orders in his um, assistant uh, Schultz, which I'm pretty sure that's also what Hogan's Heroes got got it from. But anyway, and um, <laughs> He says, "Okay, we've we've found the the guy who we're pretty sure is the leader of the Polish underground. His name is uh, Bogusov uh, Rivansky." And Schultz says, "Oh, good. We've we've already killed him. We shot him two days ago." Uh, and uh, so the the agent slash actor goes, "What? You you shot him already? Did you not question him?" He's like, oh, yes, we had definite proof that this man was telling some outrageous, supposedly funny stories about the Fuhrer. So we shot him. Uh, and the, the agent goes, oh, why don't you look at these people before you shoot them? Uh, and he says, well, uh, Colonel Earhart signed the execution orders himself. And Colonel Earhart, being the idiot, he's, he's like, oh, well, I signed so many of those every day. How, how was I supposed to know? Um, and uh, so then the agent goes, but okay, there is one other second in command we could get, uh, Maximilian uh, Petrovsky. And Schultz just gives him a look like, uh, <laughs> and the agent goes, don't tell me you. He says, well, this is the Colonel Earhart did the, signed the order. And the guy's like, and uh, the, he culminates in him saying, you know, uh, I, we should tell London about the way your guys are running things. They'll give you the Legion of Honor and, or the St. Vincent, St. <laughs> Victoria Cross, whatever. And uh, so then Schultz leaves and, uh, but uh, the agent who's still trying to kind of slightly get out of there, he's like, oh, d don't worry, Colonel Earhart. Uh, I, I don't like the way he was trying to shift blame back to you. Uh, so, <laughs> and uh, it, it kind of it goes on from there. But that's uh, the exchange I wanted to highlight, which uh, that's one of many similarly toned scenes in this movie, which is trying to sort of get at use comedy to sort of get at the casual brutality of what the Nazis were doing. Which I mean, looking back on it now, it, it it's, it's it's it was in questionable taste then. It's in questionable taste now. At the time, they didn't know quite the extent of the Holocaust. It probably didn't jump out quite as much. But um, what I think he's trying to really show here, though, is um, he's trying to do the careful balance that any like anti-fascist satire has to engage in, which is you have to make these guys look like an idiot, make people laugh at them, but you also need to show that they're dangerous, that... Um, that, that there it's, it's funny, but it's not funny because people really will get hurt by these people. And when you have someone like, uh, Colonel Earhart, it, it's kind of like you're depicting the Nazis as being like a, a small child who got his hands on a gun. You, you're making him look like a small, just laughable thing, but one that can really hurt people. And I think, nothing scarier than the consequences of an idiot, right? Right, and that I think is the needle that this scene and this movie threads. Yeah, um, really well put. I love this film. It's been ages since I've seen it to the point that when I saw this referenced in the 
Google Doc, I didn't initially remember what scene it was until hearing you go through. I'm like, oh yeah, yeah, it's a good one. Um, Ian, have you seen To Be or Not To Be? No. Oh, now I kind of want real- to. I didn't realize. Yeah, it's really good. It's got that biting comedy to it. So yeah, it was for some reason remade by Mel Brooks in the '80s, which I haven't seen that. I I can't completely judge, but that seems like a terrible idea because where the movie gets its real power from is that it is making this movie in the middle of 1942. Right. And mm-hmm. it's it's really it's jaw dropping. It's yeah, I haven't seen the Brooks remake either. I know it's not considered one of his it's considered one of his lesser films i don't i've never seen anyone really champion it um i've seen people champion robin hood men in tights for god's sake but no one's champion that so that I mean, does not dracula <laughs> dead and loving it so yeah the fact that those films have more of a fan base than that does not indicate good things to me but i haven't seen it either um i mean i don't know if we how much we want to get into it but it's interesting too to think about comparing how Ernst Lubitsch satirized Nazis versus how Chaplin did it two years prior. Um, because I think one of the things that you point out in the scene is just that, yes, it, it maintains the danger and the threat, no question, but it is also really funny and it doesn't necessarily feel the need to pull its comedic punches or go for a sort of overtly sentimental beat. There's a couple here and there. There's the one line where they're disguising up one of the uh, to like disguising someone as Hitler and they say he just looks like a comical little man in a mustache or something akin to that. And someone says, well, so that's what Hitler is. So they have the couple lines of like that are more, I don't know, going for a more sense of overt uh, profundity. But for the most part, it is content to just be like extremely funny and just allow it to function. At, like there is obviously a much greater substance to it, but if you really did want to watch it just for quality jokes, it does succeed on that level, I think, in a way yeah. that the Great Dictator kind of doesn't. Yeah, I mean, I think the, I think they're actually pretty different films. Uh, like one key difference between the two is that, um, in To Be or Not to Be, the Nazis are Nazis, like flat out. They just call them Nazis. Right. There's no beating around the bush. The Great Dictator, it's it's a technically a fictional country with yeah. like X's instead of swastikas. Um, which is that that's basically just a function of that having been made before America entered into the war. But Can you imagine um, how checked out of the cultural zeitgeist you'd have to be to see the film in 1940 and not get the, the parallels. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's, yeah, it's one of those, uh, uh, legal technicality things. Yeah, yeah. But, uh, uh, but I do think that does make a difference, um, on some level. And also, I, I think the focus on the great dictator is on the dictator. Um, Hitler doesn't, the real Hitler doesn't show up in To Be or Not To Be. You know, there's scenes where people are imitating him. I, I don't think he shows he up. He doesn't sign no, he any doesn't. diaries yeah. or anything. <laughs> um, right. Uh, so it's really kind of more about the sort of the underlings of Hitler, the people's fanatical loyalty to him. Mm-hmm. That's a good um, point. And it doesn't feel the need to make have a big speechifying ending. Like it literally ends on a on a callback joke about actors get or get people getting up in the middle of the Hamlet speech. Um, yeah, that's the thing about the movie because uh, half of it's about um, Nazis being evil, and the other half are about actors being egotistical pams. And it has plenty of fun with that as well. 
mm-hmm. but um, the, the actors do end up saving the day. Um, a lot of people have suggested that uh, Tarantino's Inglorious Bastards um, pulls a bit from this, especially the ending where there's a sort of public performance that a mission goes down during. But I think the even bigger lift is that um, a lot of Tarantino's movies have um, people acting in real life um, as kind of a theme, whether it's the undercover cops and Reservoir Dogs or the ruse they're trying to pull at the end of Django or um, uh, Michael Fassbender's ruse in um, Inglorious Bastards. And that's kind of what To Be or Not To Be is all about. It's about actors using their skills in order to do espionage and sort of bringing that into the real real life. Okay, well, I'm intrigued. I, I got to check this one out. Well, I hadn't thought about it too until you mentioned that it's basically a collision of like egotistical actors and Nazi satire, that it's kind of part of, uh, maybe even started a tradition of films about actors in Nazi Germany along with like, or just nazi europe i guess if you talk about like the last metro or um mephisto Mm -hmm. that are kind of doing similar things in vaguely similar they're not comparable films in too many other respects but i don't know i I made was this the first film that kind of did that i mean it was probably the first movies that did much of anything about nazi germany so true enough must be cool i guess it's also worth pointing out that like so many of the films from this time that directly deal with the war don't hold up especially well like you really need to put yourself in the mindset of like it was made in the war that's why it's like this like mrs minerva is a good example where it's like it's Mm. so saccharine and one-dimensional and like heavy-handed that like if you just watch it as a movie it's like this is unbearable but it's like it was made in 1942 height of the war like it had to be this way and yet here's a rare example of a comedy holding up a million times better than comparable dramas from i mean they're not that comparable i suppose but in terms of uh i don't know people say comedy is the quickest to age and this is a rare exception where it's kind of the opposite which is neat yeah i mean if anything this one aged better people at the time did not love the movie it it was polarizing you could say um crits a lot of critics did not find it funny uh because of it, it was just too loaded but looking back at it now you totally it the, the sting is not quite the same and you really it's just the audacity of it really stands out right on all right ian okay I wanted to talk about the Maltese Falcon. And the moment I'm going to talk about is the idea of Sam Spade's partner's name being scraped off of the the doors. And the reason I want to bring this up is because I thought this is a good touching point for kind of how theme can add so many layers to, to a movie. And I guess how we perceive the theme of the film and so Maltese Falcon is a movie that I've that I've liked for a long time like I've watched this movie many times throughout the years and it's always been one of those films where I I recognize its noir elements and its great performances and I've always enjoyed it Um, but I never like truly loved it until a few viewings ago where suddenly things started clicking for me as to what the controlling idea of the movie is at least in my opinion which is 
the idea of cold logic versus irrational emotion. And I think these two conflicting ideas is, is what's at the heart of the movie. And so the thing that kind of describes that with this name scraping off is because Sam Spade, played by Humphrey Bogart, his uh, partner gets killed pretty early in the film. They're both private detectives. They've got a little detective office together. And he is completely dispassionate about his partner's death. When he hears the news on the phone, he's, he's just nonchalant about it. He's like, oh, yeah, okay, when? All right. And then he goes back into the office and all he says is, have a have Spade and Archer taken off the windows and then just put Samuel Spade on there instead. Like that's how he's dealing with his partner's death, his partner that they've been together for years. And it really speaks something to that character about, I mean, he's cold, but at the same time, the movie is almost taking his side in a weird way where it's saying that this, this sort of dispassionate logic might be the best way to go about things. And especially when you compare that later in the film when Mary Astor's character comes into it and she's, you know, she's trying to make him fall in love with her and and at the end of the film she basically appeals to his emotion and he's having none of it, right? Because he's he's the same stoic character he's always been. But just that that conflict between those those two ways to approach problems to approach life i think is really at the heart of this movie have you guys ever like have you do you guys see that in the movie or is that something i'm pulling from it all on my own no it's it's, it's, it's definitely in there um you can totally imagine like an alternate version of this movie or the story where this guy's partner is killed and that's like his driving motivation for you know, finding the bad guys throughout the rest of the movie, but uh, that's not the movie we get. Instead, like, we, we actually get a pretty, get painted a pretty vivid picture that this Archer guy must have just really sucked. Like, <laughs> just because, like, absolutely no one seems to care that he's dead. His wife barely cares. Uh, the secretary seems to only kind of care. Uh, the uh, and Sam Spade basically just, just, you know, he scrapes the name off. Um, he's not even pretending to be affected by this. No, not at all. Uh, he's, he's almost going out of his way to signal how much he doesn't care. But also that might be a little bit of a ruse even. Um, like at the end, he finally does say, you know, uh, we can't just let people get away with get, having their uh, business partners get killed. Even if we don't like them, it, it sends the wrong message. <laughs> and, um, yeah, and but even then, it's not it's not because of a personal connection. It's because of outside uh, perception, <laughs> right? Um, and also, it's also kind of a signal to the audience because if they had gone down that other route where this guy is, you know heroically trying to avenge his partner's death um then it wouldn't have made it much sense to the audience all the like they wouldn't have been in suspense about how much sam spade is actually gonna you know be the bad guy in this and like go after the falcon for pure greed which is what he seems to be doing for long stretches of the film 
Um, and that's that kind of ambiguity is like very much intertwined with the casting of Humphrey Bogart in this role because you know we watch this movie now we know Humphrey Bogart's a movie star we assume he's just going to be a, a hero but when this movie was made that was not so clear Bogart had spent like the last 10 years playing just villains mostly um, he was he'd be the guy that is slightly more evil than James Cagney and James Cagney would <laughs> kill off at the end for various Hayes Code reasons before Cagney then went off to jail as well. Um, so it would almost be like if you made a movie, you, you, you like in today's terms, it would be like if you made a, a, a superhero movie, let's say, and you cast as your superhero, Sean Bean. <laughs> and everyone's going to be like, Sean Bean, when's he going to die? <laughs> and similarly, you're, you're seeing Humphrey Bogart, this guy you've seen just be a total heavy for his entire career. And you watch this movie, you see this guy being a sociopath about his partner getting killed. And you're wondering, okay, is this guy good or is this guy evil? And the stuff like the scraping of the name off, it keeps you in kind of suspense about kind of what side he's going to land on through the whole movie. Yeah. Um, I think I'd might quickly add, and Michael, you've watched the movie a lot more recently. You'll be able to comment on how accurate this is, but even though um, Sam Spade has a very, you know, callous attitude to his partner's death, uh, going to your point about it being a ruse, you could argue on some level it, I mean, the death does kind of hang over the whole movie, even if it's treated with a certain ambivalence. And to some extent wondering is that ambivalence on Bogart's part, well, on the character's part specifically, is it performative to an extent? Is he trying to, I don't know, uh, enact a certain ideal of, you know, what being a man dealing with grief looks like? And you could argue, no, it's, he really just does not really care. But I think that does add a layer to the character in terms of um, trying to unpack how much this is really affecting him. Because usually if people act like, maybe not usually, but often in fiction, at least characters, uh, you know, espoused to having like no emotion about things. They actually have a lot of emotions about those things. They're just kind of buried beneath the surface. Um, so it's been a year since I've seen the film. So I'm not sure how prevalent that actually is in the characterization, but it's an angle I think you could take if you wanted to. Uh, but to the point about the theme being about logic versus emotion, I think that's spot on. That's basically like informs every choice at that the characters and especially Sam makes throughout the story. Yeah, I feel like it is too, especially at the end, right? His final yes. decision at the end. It's yeah. And as a as a former scientist, I have some sympathy for that stance, right? The the idea of detaching yourself from in this case it's a murder mystery or, you know, an investigation and and, and trying to look at things cold and dispassionately. Um but you know, as a I'm not I don't think I'm that cold of a human being. So I also see the other side as well. And I, I like that, that those two things clash in this movie and it, it really sold it for me when I started to see those things in it. Right. I mean, I think where I kind of see a bit of a flaw here is that I don't really think the relationship between Humphrey Bogart and um, what's her name? The, the Mary Astor. Yeah. Mary Astor. I don't, I don't, I don't know the character's that, name. Yeah. I don't think that, I, I never entirely bought that. Um, he, he he met this woman like uh, like two days before the speech at the end, and 
Hayes code reasons. The, there, there wasn't, you don't see a whole lot of intimacy between them. Uh, it, it's, it's a little hard to buy that he's going to have this much trouble turning in this woman who's lied and cheated and connived through the whole movie and tried to murder, well, did murder his partner and <laughs> more than likely would have murdered him. Uh, I'm not quite sure I quite see the, the dilemma there personally, but you could argue I, it's a, it's a prototype to like the erotic thrillers where it's like, ah, she might kill me, but she's hot. What do I do? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, yeah. I like the, these like Dashiell Hammett mysteries are most definitely the template they're using for those eighties uh, thrillers. Yeah. But uh, I, as, as to your question of how much I think this is genuine, I, I, I do think he genuinely doesn't like this guy a whole lot, but I do think he is conflicted about like what he says at the end, just letting people get away with murder. He, that, that, I think that's really the morality that's getting to him more so than uh, any particular remorse over Archer. This Archer guy really does just, we see this guy for all of one minute before yeah. he's just shot in the back, uh, which is incidentally the only scene in the movie that Sam Spade isn't personally in. Oh, uh, yeah. That's neat. Which, um, uh, like, another thing that's kind of playing into this is that um, the Maltese Falcon novel, um, apparently it's written in a very odd way where there's absolutely no internal monologue in it. It's just describing everything everyone does without like getting into sort of like explicitly saying any of their um, emotions about it. So even in the text, there's supposed to be kind of this like mystery as to what he's thinking through this whole thing. Hmm. I did not know that. That's fascinating. It must have been challenging to adapt when there's <laughs> no internal monologue, but well, or it's easier because then you don't have oh, it's to true. come up with ways you to do whatever you show want. internal monologue. Yeah, yeah. it's true. All right. well, either way, good job, Houston. <laughs> um, good pick, okay. yeah. Um, okay, Let's so I guess it. jump back to me. You betcha. Uh, so, um, as was pointed out by Michael before we started recording, I'm fundamentally uncreative and went with the second Joseph Cotton movie. Uh, Oops-a-daisy. So I'm going with Shadow of a Doubt, Alfred Hitchcock's great film. I was actually debating between this or Rebecca or Foreign Correspondent just because, you know, one filmmaker who was really, he wasn't quite at his peak yet, but was certainly uh, doing amazing work and certainly is a master at creating... uh, moments and scenes one Mr. Alfred Hitchcock but I went with Shadow of a Doubt and it's less a specific moment so much as it is a general setting which is the bar that uh, Charlie and her uncle Charlie go to uh, at a certain point in the film so for some context the basic premise of the story is that uh, Uncle Charlie has arrived to this small picturesque uh, wholesome town to stay with uh his sister's family and specific, specifically uh, important is their teen daughter, who is also named Charlie, named after her uncle. And she, very innocent, idolizes Uncle Charlie and then finds out, well, we know as an audience in the beginning, something's not right with Uncle Charlie. We don't know what it is. We find out at the same time she does that, oh no, he's the merry widow murderer and he's romancing and then killing rich widows. 
and it shatters her her view of the world and its innocence. And there's this scene where she and Uncle Charlie go to this bar together just to talk it out. And I'm less interested in the actual scene so much as that as a setting, because the main theme of the film very clearly is loss of innocence. And it's represented by having this very, you know, wholesome, pure American small town that seems so innocent and so decent and seeing actually no, there's darkness there, there's corruption, there's, there's seedy things going on. Um, it's very similar. And I think I'm assuming it was direct influence on Twin Peaks, for example, where you have the wholesome facade of, oh, damn fine coffee. And then you have places like the Bang Bang Bar, which are just, even just the name tells you how seedy and gross that place is. Um, and when you go to the bar, it's, you know, it's very sort of dingy place and the waitress who's working there. I don't know if she's the exact same age as Teresa Wright, who's playing the young teen Charlie, but she looks about the same, but she seems so much more world weary and cynical and bitter. And like, she's seen so much more, uh, I don't know, just the, the hardness of the world than, than Charlie has. But at the same time, what I really love about it is how not over the top it is as far as like a sort of. Uh, fall from innocence because it's not it's not like Twin Peaks which really plays up the extreme contrast between wholesome Americana and you know dingy scary bar where bad things happen it's a very normal place like it's 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 kind of just a bar Um, and what I like about it is one it reflects how despite the fact that everything seems very innocent the film is consistently teasing at darker elements the main thing is uh Charlie's father and his neighbor are just obsessed with talking about the perfect murder. All they can talk about is how they would kill each other and get away with it. Yeah, that's very Hitchcockian. Off. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, does he think that people have these conversations normally? He must. He's like, I'm sure he did. We'll talk about this all the time. <laughs> yeah. I clearly it interested him, but it like, yeah, every scene, like, and they talk about it very casually, even though it's a very macabre thing. And so there's hints like that. Um, there's also and I haven't done any real reading into this, but it's, I feel like it's implied there's something in Uncle Charlie and his sister's past, some sort of traumatic thing. There's nothing explicit and maybe I'm just misreading their performances, but I don't know, something's not right with those two. I'll tell you what, but so when they get to this bar here, yes, it's this like sort of lack of innocence in the world and the shattered ideal for her, but it is also very normalized. It's not the case that, you know, uh, it's not that traumatic a shift so much as, you know, she just wakes up one day and the world's not the innocent and, and safe place it was the day before. And while that's a scary thought, it's also a very normal one. And I love just as a setting, how this bar reflects that without being too on the nose about it either. How old is she supposed to be in this? I think she's 16. I don't know. She hooks up with the older cop at the end, which when you watch now, you're like, ooh, that's, that has not aged perfectly. Um, so 16, 17. I don't know how old Teresa Wright was at this time. So. Um, yeah, like what I find interesting about that is like in, in broad strokes, Shadow of Doubt is supposed to be about, you know, the seemingly wholesome town and Uncle Charlie enters it and makes it not wholesome. But this bar complicates it because it suggests that their Uncle Charlie is not the only dark thing happening in this town. That was kind of BS from the beginning. Um, the this bar is, you know, it's, it's it's more or less supposed to be like a you know den of sin, shall we say? 
uh the second she walks in everyone's like oh I, you don't normally come into places like this but the fact that there are you know places like this in this town means that yeah uncle charlie is not the sole cause of trouble in this place um i don't know if this town i think it's santa rosa is would technically be considered a suburb i think it basically is a suburb now just because of how sprawling the bay area is but um it's kind of a proto suburb it's it it's and in this sense hitchcock is pretty well ahead of um the trend in terms of these movies where evil kind of enters into the the, the suburbs and uh it's that's meant to be kind of a thing to panic the average American moviegoer, as we see in, you know, as you mentioned, several David Lynch movies. Uh, also, just even stuff like you know Halloween. Mm-hmm. That's yeah. similarly, you know, Michael Myers entering into an supposedly idyllic town, but right. um, but also coming from that idyllic town too. Yeah. Right. And that that's that's actually why I think a scene like this is important because that whole setup can be kind of icky. It's about suggesting that the outsider is the problem. But when you have, you know, that place like that bar in the town the whole time, it suggests, you know, maybe maybe this town had its own problems to begin with. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean if Uncle Charlie never came home as it were she would have probably discovered that bar and what it represents at some point or another anyway on her own. Um, yeah. I like that you point out how ahead of its time the film is to the point that it, it almost, it's not even clear if it qualifies as a suburb and yet is playing into those uh, sort of tropes and themes. In some ways it feels more like a film that would have emerged in like the fifties alongside what Douglas Sirk mm-hmm. was doing in a very different genre, but in terms of pulling back on the supposed wholesomeness of the American suburb. Um, yeah. It's kind of like a proto Cape Fear almost. Yeah, man, that is interesting. Um, Hitch, well ahead of his time. I like the idea of the theme being tied to a location. I like that you that you drag that out of it. It's a I'm tr- now I'm trying to, my head's racking to kind of come up with other examples of that, but I mean they're all over the place. You look at like most of Tim Burton's movies, for example, they're all about sort of the weirdness coming into the suburbs he has kind of a more upbeat take on it Mm -hmm. dan you like your bars i remember talking you talking about the uh clockwork orange one too it's true yeah i I didn't clue into it to list uh earlier today i'm like (laughs) oh it's the second time i'm like what i really liked about the film the bar so um it is also funny that like as much as like we're talking about it as like a seedy place. And I think it is within the context of the film. It is also just like a bar. It's kind of like how in it's a wonderful life when Jimmy Stewart has the vision of like the nightmare world where he wasn't alive in. And it's like, Oh God, there's more bars here. It's like, yeah, the place is now way more fun to hang out in. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, but so there's a certain, like, I don't know. There's something to unpack there, but uh, as a location, I think it really works. And, you can certainly feel that atmosphere when you're in that place with them. So, and I think of the conversation, a lot of it centers around like the jewelry he took from murdering widows. So, you know, it's, it's, it's right on the table quite literally. Yeah. This is, this is Hitch's favorite movie of his, isn't it? Well, filmmakers, they get asked over and over again, what their favorite movie is. 
I think a lot of them end up just kind of picking one and they'll say that in one interview and then that gets quoted and requoted all over the place. You're never quite sure how serious they were about it. I want to say in Hitchcock Truffaut, he says something about how it was a film that the, the sort of, uh, the logic police who would often like criticize the what X character do that in his movies. They didn't have as much with that film. He says something like that about shadow of a doubt. So it was something that he could sort of put forth as bulletproof, I guess. I don't know. I haven't read that book in a long time now, but I remember reading that and finding it interesting. Cause yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a trivia item that gets cited a lot. I want to say on the Blu-ray, like the, the sort of behind the scenes featurette on the film is literally called like Hitchcock's favorite film. So they really own it. Um, and I think Joseph Cotton has a quote where he's like, Orson Welles, Alfred Hitchcock, Carl Reed, you'll notice all their, all their best films, they have me. Um, <laughs> not sure if he actually said that, but I've seen it reported to him. And uh, I like to think it's true because I like Joseph Cotton. I wonder if these filmmakers' favorite films of theirs are like their favorite films too. <laughs> I always wonder that because I don't know that any of them would actually be honest if you told them, but I wonder if any of them are like, this film I made is, is the best film. <laughs> I want to say Jeff Bridges has said, like when he was asked his top five favorite movies by Rotten Tomatoes, he said The Big Lebowski. It's like, you dick. That's not, you can't do that. <laughs> Actually, I think uh, I, I seem to remember an article about Al Gore picking his top 10 films and actually putting an inconvenient truth on the list. That's worse. Yeah, That's definitely it was, worse. <laughs> it was honestly one of the worst like top 10 movie mo- film lists I've ever seen, ever. Man. <laughs> You should look it up. Look up Al Gore's favorite movies. I, you'll have a good laugh. <laughs> Interesting. Well, yeah. Um, Michael, you're next. Take us away from bars. Uh, okay. Um, so my next pick is from the movie The Life and Death of Colonel Blimp, uh, made by uh, Powell and Pressburger uh, in 1943. Uh, another film that deals head on with the recent World War II. Um, and this one, it's not the most widely seen movie. So I think I feel like I should just take a second and say what this movie even is. Um, so this is a movie, it opens up, you meet a, uh, you meet the main character who's his name isn't actually Colonel Blimp. That's a whole long story I can't even get into right now. Uh, his name is, uh, he's Colonel Clive Candy. Uh, and you meet him. He's this um, pretty old, uh, crusty, very anachronistic um, uh, British officer. Um, and this is, it's set right in the present day. It's uh, like a training exercise for the war. And uh, you meet him, he's, he's very, he's unimpressive, he's overweight, he's, uh, he seems to have lost a step, and he just seems like this old colonialist uh, fogey, the kind of person who I'm sure was like, a lot of British uh, troop, troops were kind of getting sick of dealing with these kind of people. And so you're meeting him at kind of his lowest point, um, but then it flashes back and you kind of see his life up to that point as he went through the Boer War um, and World War I and other various experiences. And you get an idea of kind of how he became the man you see at the end. Um, and what the, and, at, and by the end, it gets very deep into sort of a 
philosophical um, debate he has with the people around him about the nature of the British army and how they should be fighting World War II. Uh, specifically, he believes he's a very patriotic man. He believes British Britain does the right thing you know, in, in spite of a lot of evidence we get in the film. <laughs> um, uh, and that, uh, and he's about to say something like, um, if we have to fight the Germans like the Germans fight us, I don't even want to win the war, which uh, that's a very controversial statement. But uh, the movie is in many ways kind of trying to show kind of um, how he got to feel that way. It very much humanizes him. It gets you to understand him. But at the same time, in various sly ways, it is constantly just calling him on all of his BS um, along the way. It uh, And the scene I'm looking at uh, is a scene pretty early in the film uh, that kind of speaks to this mindset of his uh, where he is speak. He's uh, it's uh, set. This this scene is set in like the around the turn of the century, right as he has come back from the Boer War, and he is um, talking to a superior officer about this uh, scheme he's hatched up to go to Berlin and um, sort of uh, confront a person who he believes has been spreading lies and propaganda about the way the British have been fighting in the Boer War. Uh, specifically, he is uh, uh, angry that this guy has, quote, uh, 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 this guy's name is Kaunitz, who he calls a liar and a scoundrel, who claims that the uh, British have been setting up concentration camps and uh, allowing uh, women and children to die in South Africa in these concentration camps. Uh, and this guy is, and Candy is hearing all of this and he is just not having it. He's uh, very angry about this and he's trying to uh, get this to happen. Uh, so, okay, so let's deconstruct this a bit. Um, the irony here is that anyone who knows anything about the history of the Boer War knows that um, this so-called propaganda is probably true. Uh, the British did, in fact, set up concentration camps during the Boer War. Uh, it was a very messy and brutal war. Uh, but this guy seems to very genuinely believe that that is, well, I hate to use the phrase, but he's basically calling it fake news. <laughs> um, even though it is uh, very true. And it's not super clear if he's really just this deluded that he really doesn't know what's going on in this war that he himself is fighting, or if he's basically just too patriotic to admit it. And I think that's a very complex thing they're doing here in this movie made right in the middle of World War II when movies are supposed to be at their most patriotic. Uh, because they're very quickly bringing up a period in time when uh, Britain itself was in many ways acting like the Nazis are acting right now. And it does this in a way without bringing too much attention to it. In fact, it kind of, right after he brings it up, he goes straight into this like joke about uh, having known Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, which, I mean, if you look really deep into this, that's also 
priest lie because Arthur Conan Doyle was in fact a propagandist for the Boer War as well. Uh, but in the movie, it's really just going straight into this, like just kind of going right over it. Um, and, but it um, still uh, bringing up Britain doing concentration camps in the middle of a movie made in 1943 is incredibly subversive and it's, uh, does it in a sly way that's not going to get too many people angry, but also it plays very much into sort of some of the, a lot of the hypocrisy of this character and further complicates kind of your picture of him throughout the film. How was it received when it, like, did people point that out when it came out? Do you have any idea? So that's a bit tricky because there's kind of a difference between the way the public received it and the way uh the british establishment received it um especially kind of before the movie was even made when they were trying to get uh the script through the um the ministry of information um to get cooperation from the military when making it uh the ministers involved did not like what they saw um it wasn't the scene that was causing the stir it was just uh so um, they, they just did not want to uh, tangle with this image of sort of bloviating uh, British officers like this. They kind of want to just claim these people didn't exist rather than sort of what this movie is doing, which is making this sort of human um, complicated picture of them. Because uh, the, the mo final movie is actually quite patriotic. That's a big part of why I like it so much. It manages to be very patriotic without being stupid. Blind, um, yeah. And I didn't even get into this, but it's also a movie that um, gets very much into uh, talking about Germans. And uh, there's a prominent character in it who is sort of a, what you'd call a good German, uh, an anti-Nazi German. And it gives a very strong human portrayal of him as well which, you know, that's, uh, I, as a viewer watching it now, that's great. But if you're a literal government propagandist, that's probably not, you know, that's not necessarily the main thing you want to be getting across to the public at the moment. Also, Winston Churchill himself apparently uh, took against the film before without having actually seen it. Um, basically, the people in that Ministry of Information told him about it, and he also came out against it. And that became an issue. They were still able to make the movie though, basically just because uh, the guy who ran the studio just, he, he thought it was gonna be a good movie and he wasn't gonna be deterred. Um, and they managed to get uh, enough uniforms and tanks and whatnot to make it without um, the army's help. But um, it did, uh, they say it did kind of do some harm to Paul and Pressburger's career going forward. Um, they were never offered a knighthood, for example. Uh, and they think that this movie is the reason why. Yeah. Um, there's a lot, a lot there. Um, one thing I want to quickly talk to as well is that point about, you know, not only the subversiveness of bringing, uh, you know, this aspect of colonialism up, but also um, it draws to, to attention or makes you question like, okay, how aware is the movie of, you know, this as being an, like an unethical thing and how aware is it that um, Candy's defending atrocities? Um, 
But I think one of the keys of signifying that the film is actually very aware of it is towards the middle during the First World War, when at the end, when the war ends, Candy makes the speech about how right is might, how we fought the war the gentleman's way and we won. Like we don't have to resort to the dirty tricks as it were. But right before that, there's some prisoners, German prisoners who Candy interrogates, but it's very much just like, tell me this thing. No, well, all right, then I tried. And he leaves and the South African soldier there is not playing the gentleman's war game. And he's going to get that information by any cost. And we don't see what happens there, but it's just this little indication of like, oh, Candy's actually very naive in his worldview and he's not really privy to everything going on. And I think if once you get to the end of the film, uh, the, that final act, and it's really about like how out of place Candy is in World War II, that stuff becomes a lot more prominent. But I think that the the Boer War propaganda sort of leads into the uh, Great War naivety that he displays. So there's kind of these little sprinkling throughout that like, Candy's very naive and he has a naive uh, sense of what uh, Britain is and what, you know, English values are in some ways. So, because I think that's something that will come up for a lot of modern viewers uh, who see the film is wondering how critical is the film of that side. Yeah, and I mean, to some extent, I feel like even if you're if you're going to bring up this history, I, I, I do think I, I've given all the sensitivity in the film, I am very willing to give Bell and Pressburger the sort of benefit of the doubt that they're very aware of yeah if you're, you're not going to bring up Boer War concentration camps or concentration camps put, set up by the British at all in a movie in 1943 unless you're trying to make a point and I'm pretty sure that's that's they're they're doing that for a reason mm-hmm. um, that's a good point too on a simpler level, it's a bold move too that the film basically opens with that. And I think we like Candy anyway, even though he's like, like I'm going to defend against this propaganda that we know like, ooh, that's kind of bad, but he, we still like him as a character. Um, it's a really tricky balancing act, but uh, I don't know. I think the film does a very good job of like making you, and it's something that runs through the whole course of the film, be critical of him and uh, question him, but also as a person, I think you do like him in a lot of ways, at least by the end, like a lot of the point of it is when you come to that old fogey at the end, you don't look down on him the way that you might have at the start. Absolutely. And like, even if you're not, you know, enmeshed in sort of the truth of that propaganda or even the politics of that in general at all, uh, the just basic story point of that whole episode of the film is that uh, it's showing Candy when he was at his youngest or most brash as an officer and how that whole experience kind of humbled him a bit. Um, and also it very specifically shows how he became the guy at the end through that uh, whole section because he ends it by getting a big scar on his upper lip and that's why he gets his signature mustache, which um, like, I might as well go into the sort of the backstory. The reason it's called the life and death of Colonel Blimp is because it's named after a series of like newspaper cartoons. Um, in British papers in the 40s, where there's the stock character called Colonel Blimp, who is very much that guy at the beginning of the movie. He's got this walrus-like mustache. He's says just idiotic things uh, that are meant to be parodies of the British establishments and of sort of uh, overpaid officers in general. Um, 
And so the whole movie is really kind of saying, okay, we know everyone out there has their opinions about these guys, but let's get beneath the surface. Let's figure out what made it makes a guy like that tick and why you should at least have some respect for him, even if there's a lot of things to criticize about him. Very cool. Ian, have you seen The Life and Death? Oh, no, wait. No, you no, haven't. Have I, was you? Gonna, I was going to try to watch it today, but I just didn't have time to get to it. It's really good. Yeah, It is on Criterion Channel, so I'm uh, nice. on the list. It's my favorite Powell and Pressburger movie, which is probably a hot take because Red Shoes is much more visually sort of sumptuous and you know Black Narcissus has more of a mystery, not like a literal mystery, but sort of an element of mystery to it. Uh, Matter of Life and Death is probably a lot more romantic, but I don't know. There's so much to unpack in Life and Death of Colonel Blimp, and also it's it's so it has such a strong like as much as we've talked a lot about like the politics of it and unpacking it. The core of it is like this friendship, and it's very human and very easy to relate to, even if you're not super well versed in the sort of uh, history of Britain through the early 20th century. Right. The other thing that's interesting about it within their filmography is I think this is the one where it's most apparent that there are two people making these movies. Um, often when people talk about Powell and Pressburger, I think Powell tends to get more of the credit and get talked about more just because he was more of a self-promoter later in his life. And also he had a few more kind of solo movies that people care about. But this is a movie where the fact that... Um, a uh, Hungarian uh, emigre from German, the German film industry working in England is very apparent. Like it's about, it's a movie about a friendship between a British guy and a German guy. Um, and a lot about uh, the life of that German character in late in the movie while he's living in Britain is uh, very much mirrors a lot of uh, Pressburger's experiences being um, someone who was legally considered a uh, potential foreign agent um, and having to follow various um, kind of crazy sounding rules because of that. Um, it is not hard to see the parallels between Pressburger and that character. And you can, this is the movie where I think Pressburger most clearly kind of makes his voice heard in um, their whole career. Okay. Yeah, good point. Okay. I didn't know that about uh, Pressburger being like mirroring Teo that uh, firmly, but it makes sense. All right, Ian, good pick. Okay. take us to something lighter, but also kind of not. <laughs> Let's do it. Let's. Okay, so I would say Casablanca is what we're going to talk about. And, and Dan, you mentioned Citizen Kane being like the biggest movie. And I would say critically, you're correct. But I think if you're looking at like terms of just straightforward reputation and popularity Casablanca kind of it kind of stands alone I think the only one that might hold a same, similar place as maybe like Wizard of Oz but I think those those movies are so up in what people think of as great Hollywood movies that I Casablanca is yeah something else like it, it really is i would say it's one of the bigger movies period in, yeah you know in the mindsets of every anybody that knows anything about movies really see i feel like the way this was positioned i should get really defensive and be like nah man wells the kid critiques his ass but i do agree so <laughs> yeah no I'm, I'm just saying you know as as 
in terms of reputation that's all yeah and I mean, it, it, like go ahead michael well i mean i i will speak up a bit for citizen kane simply being um i think that casablanca i think its reputation kind of uh goes in and out whereas i think citizen kane is pretty much eternal but um i digress i think casablanca is pretty beloved though uh, and for good reason. I think it's... for my only thing with bigness, Citizen Kane, like not just in popularity, but the movie in its style just feels big. Like Wells was not like a subtle man in his acting or his like direction generally. Although Ambersons, you could argue. I don't know. Something about Kane just feels so like epic in a way that Casablanca, as great as it is, does not. But yeah. I digress now. Okay. <laughs> yeah, let's. So you're, that makes a good, you're making a good point there. <laughs> as far as the film goes, it's a little bit epic. Yeah, I'm just. Okay. I'll move Most on. <laughs> people would agree that Citizen Kane is probably the more technically yeah. uh, innovative film, but Casablanca, I, it, it can very easily be argued it has the more compelling story, yeah. mm-hmm. if, if you so choose to. <laughs> so with Casablanca, there are so many moments I could pick from this, and I'm going to pick a moment that's not even my favorite Casablanca moment, right? Because if I'm thinking about what are my favorite moments, it's probably either Ilsa's introduction or of course the absolutely iconic ending but i'm actually going to go with go with a scene where rick who's again i've picked another humphrey bogart you're you're worried about joseph gotten i picked two humphrey bogart movies so it's fine uh and i think the scene that i'm talking about is where he helps this young newly married couple uh basically win at gambling by you know crooked a crooked gambling uh trick i guess right he he basically tells this guy to put it on a certain number he he you know he gives a little nod to the to the roulette guy and he wins a whole bunch of money i mean it's his casino so whatever but i like this moment and for i kind of have three reasons why i think it's a pretty solid moment to talk about in this movie the first one is per, basically because it shows something about Rick's character. It shows that he does have heart, right? Because he's, when you see him, he's kind of built up as this cold, no-nonsense kind of character. But he's definitely got a heart to him. He definitely is looking out for the little guy. Uh, but it also shows that he's, you know, he's okay to show his willingness to be corrupt <laughs> at, a, at a certain level too, right? So it shows his layers in that sense. I also really like it because it. one of the reasons I love Casablanca is because I just love the atmosphere of Rick's, of Rick's American Cafe. It's like this place where everybody goes to and... They straight up say that in the movie. <laughs> everybody goes to Rick's. That was but the every... name of the play it was based on. Yeah. Everyone goes to Rick's. <laughs> but it's like this pastiche of people who just all have their own problems. And they really give the sense that basically everybody at every table is dealing with some kind of out out there issue and they're trying to either secretly deal with it or, or they're advocating for help from somebody else that they know these secret connections. And there's all this stuff always going on there. And it just builds this atmosphere of the movie that wins me over every time it's just such a great location and you you feel the location every time you watch it 
because of things like this, right? And so this couple is, they're trying to get money so they can get out, which is a lot of people in Casablanca are, but they're a newly married couple. And of course, um, Claude Rains' character is, uh, let's say he has a dodgy uh, solution to their problem that of course, Rick is not going to let her do, right? So she's, and that leads me to my third point. So the, are they, I'm trying to remember, are they married? Yeah, they're, they're just married, I think, this couple. Yeah, they're and, a married couple escaping yeah. from Bulgaria. And she's, you know, they, they're trying to get money for the exit visa so they can go, they can get out of there. And uh, Captain Renault, played by Claude Rains in one of my favorite supporting performances ever, uh, he, he's willing to give her the money for the exit visa and of course they don't say what she needs to do to get that money but of course knowing his character and you know being able to read between the lines we know what it is he wants her to do and of course she's contemplating doing it and that's why she comes to rick she's like if i do this will he keep his word and give me the money and she's willing to do that for her husband right she's she's thinking about sacrificing a little bit of herself for the greater good. And I like this because it's sort of a foreshadowing of the love triangle that Rick ends up getting into. Right. So it's like this little small scale of what the whole movie is actually about. And, and it's all, it's kind of foreshadowing Rick's final decision as well. Right. Where I think, I think at the end of the movie, Rick is kind of realizing that he's, in the captain role, no position, and he has to make the better decision there. And so he's seeing that, you know, Ilsa is willing to go along with the greater good, but she's, and at one point, she's actually willing to basically um, give herself to Rick so that, you know, Laszlo can escape. And so it's kind of like a, a parallel situation, I think. So I like that moment for, you know, a number of different levels there. Right. Like the fascinating thing about Rick is that uh, his whole character arc, um, it, it can be interpreted as being kind of a metaphor for the United States's relationship with the war going from trying to be neutral to realizing it's in danger to finally uh, committing itself at the end. And if you follow that metaphor, this whole scene could kind of be seen as that sort of place where America was still technically neutral, but it was, you know, taking in refugees to some extent and engaging in like lend lease, uh, selling munitions to the allies, that sort of thing. Um, and this scene's a pretty good example of that evolution. Yeah. See, when I saw this in the doc, I thought for sure you were going to go with the bit where Rick's gets shut down. Shocked. And... Shocked that there's gambling in this establishment. <laughs> You're winning, sir. Oh, thank you very much. Which, watching that, again, that's a film that gets screened a lot in the intro to film class that I've TA'd. That line always kills, which is great to see. <laughs> it's great. Um, it's, but, uh, yeah, I mean, you chose something that um, I didn't even really fully consider the ways in which the subplot there is a microcosm for the or parallel rather to the the rick elsa uh laszlo drama but of course it, it totally is um yeah i think something else too that's like worth 
maybe pointing out in regards to that and Rick's character is how the film almost works in spite of itself in terms of how blunt it is with Rick, like literally saying at multiple times, I stick my neck out for nobody. It's like, you know, I get it. I get what your deal is. And yet, you know, moments like this still land really genuinely. It doesn't feel, even though it's so transparent in the script, what's happening, it doesn't feel like you're being force fed. And I'm not really sure what to attribute that to. If that's just Bogart as an actor, having that, uh, sort of charm and pull or if it's you know sort of the invisible hand of Curtiz who just makes it all work but I think that there's that is something that sort of plays into this scene despite the fact it's so transparent what his character arc is it's still very affecting when he you know does something like this on someone else's behalf yeah Right. And like when you watch this movie today, it's very easy to see the Nazis as just sort of stock bad guys. But you have to remember, this was a movie that was about current events. And specifically, it's about a very real refugee crisis that's going on, which this scene is acting as a microcosm for. And that was, that's something that would have been very personal to Michael Curtiz. Michael Curtiz had family members that were trapped in occupied Germany. His, his sister was killed at Auschwitz. Um, and it's not too hard to watch a scene like this and think, you know, maybe he's seeing his sister in this woman who Rick uh, saves. That's a very, using yeah, this. wow. I didn't know that. Right. I think, yeah, you know, you say that, I'm sure that's absolutely the case. Mm-hmm. and uh, the one thing i will say about this scene is that is not a very slick way of cheating at roulette <laughs> no, like, he's, <laughs> he's exceedingly obvious about it he's like put your money here keep it there for one more round no go cash out <laughs> right if you were someone who had chips on one of those other numbers you would have been pissed like <laughs> <laughs> yeah don't know why everyone comes to rick's when it's full of bullshit but <laughs> Yeah, yeah, that's that's a very good point. And again, it's something about, and maybe it's also just by virtue of it being like a classic film, you just kind of let those things go. But it is, it's like so obvious and you just kind of roll with it. And I don't know, it's like there's something magical about it. And I don't know if it's us just giving it a pass because it's like a great movie, but it works. Yeah, it is a good movie. It's just, he's just in control of everything, right? Like, mm-hmm. uh, yeah. I it's funny you talked about the atmosphere of... Uh, uh ricks as a place because i remember when it was screened one of the other tas was talking to me i don't know if she'd seen the film before but she was asking and not in like a judgmental way but she was like genuinely curious like why do you love this movie so much and like i think the first thing i said was like i mean ricks is just cool like it's just a cool place um i don't know like immediately just going to like the the general atmosphere of the film and how lived in it all feels because like it's obviously it's very clearly like you know a set but it feels very very lived in place in a lot of ways i find yeah, right it's filled with just kind of colorful characters as well mm-hmm. um yeah any place you're gonna have like peter laurie running through is it's, it's that's gonna be a good place to party yes yeah. oh it's... man i always forget he's in it like he's very memorable <laughs> in it but it's such a stacked cast with like amazing character actors that it's like oh yeah he's in this too and yeah, in and, maltese uh, falcon <laughs> and i love uh i love sam the pianist just the looks that he gives at rick like in the background like it's so good like if when ilsa comes and he's he's giving this look like are you serious <laughs> he's a fan he's a fantastic um 
addition to that cast as well. And uh, I can't remember who's the older waiter guy. I can't remember his name, but he's also he's also a really funny funny guy. And he's actually the one where somebody comes up to him after the gambling. He's like, "Are you sure that this place is honest? Like, <laughs> honest as the day is long, sir." <laughs> he takes offense, and yeah, nice. Yeah, I like even even just the staff of the bar. Yeah, I love mm-hmm. Rick's. I honestly think that's why I fell in love with this movie is because I love that location so much. Yeah, a lot of bars this week. Yeah, um, we're all about the bars. And even talking about the the Colonel Blimp uh, propaganda stuff, the scene where they're at, they're in Berlin, they're in this like restaurant slash bar, and there's a bit where a waiter's holding a tray with like a dozen beers. And I remember rewatching it, and I was gonna say if you Michael hadn't chosen, you know a much more substantial moment to talk about. I might've just chosen about this tray of beers. Cause you see them like going up staircases with it. And it's like very close to just spilling everywhere. And I'm just like, so tense. Don't drop those drinks. My bye. Like it's, you're so close, but I don't know. Okay. Well, we should probably wrap this up because the storm is rolling out there and I'm a little worried. My power is going to go out. That's fair. <laughs> so yeah, it's, uh, it's pretty dark out there. Cool. Lots of flashes. Uh, Michael, do you have anything to promote while you're here? Oh, uh, same places as always. Uh, my blog is uh, the Movie Vampire at uh, WordPress. Or, excuse me, the the Movie Vampire dot WordPress dot com. Uh, dumb name, okay contents. Uh, <laughs> I'm like, it's a blog that is. Uh, I update it. I don't know if anyone reads it, but it's it, 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 it's it's updated. It's about a month behind, but uh, if you want to read about how bad the new Saw movie is, that's that's the latest post. Um, alternately, if you want to see my slightly more up-to-date uh, ramblings, uh, my Letterboxd uh, account is also the Movie Vampire, and I also tweet at at the Movie Vampire because when you come up with one bad name, you just gotta triple down on that. I mean, eventually it becomes good. If you commit hard enough, it, it goes full circle. Uh, we'll see. <laughs> I think it's pretty cool. And then we got some, uh, we got some bond action happening. Yeah. Um, new on eyebrow cinema on the YouTube channel, a new video on the film, the James Bond, the sort of James Bond film, never seen ever again. And why it sucks. Um, I like to think the video is a little bit more thoughtful than that, but the core idea of it was just like, man, this movie sucks. I want to talk about how much I hate it Um, and why it basically squanders so much potential in being an outsider Bond movie and all they could have done with it. And they do just worse than nothing. But yeah, I had a lot of fun making it. There's some good dumb jokes in it, or maybe they're bad dumb jokes. I don't know. I had fun making them. So uh, check that out if you're interested in James Bond. There we go. And uh, tweet at us at cinema underscore seconds. And you know what? Send us an email. Cinema in seconds at gmail.com. Yeah. Send us an email. Tell us Tell what us. your favorite movie moments from the yeah. early 1940s are. Because there's a lot of great stuff. I mean, we were talking earlier about like, you know, slim pickings, but there's a lot of really good movies like Noise Girl Friday or uh, Grapes of Wrath, Story. Fantasia, like lots of all from 1940 specifically. But nonetheless, all great movies that uh, had stuff we could have talked about. So there's certainly more to dive into. That. So. All right. So um, thanks, Michael, for coming on the show. And I'm Ian. I've been Ian. <laughs> I've been Daniel. And hopefully <laughs> we'll be next week. Yeah. And uh, we'll catch you later. Thanks for listening.
listening. Thank you.